If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, um, lots of bizarre stuff happening in the news. Have you heard about this guy, Kenneth Law? 14 additional charges. This is in Ontario alone, and this is very much turning into a worldwide case. This guy's been sending substance to people who uh, are trying to commit suicide, and it's basically some sort of substance that's used to preserve meat. I don't know, but uh, at least that's what it's designed for. And somehow uh, it's being used to aid in suicide. What kind of person does this? Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll hear more about that story on the news and such as it uh, unravels. Uh, Snoopy Hamilton Health Sciences uh, employees uh, given walking papers, uh, including uh, there's nurses in there. Uh, 400 uh, records looked at for no reason, just being um, nosy parkers. Wow. Is nothing sacred anymore? Hey, look at this. Mr. Jones had a hernia. Nah, never mind. Anyway, uh, you know, too much time on your hands. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, people like that can't stay. Sorry, there is an ethical and a trust issue here. Uh, what else? Oh, the other big story is coming up. Post-secondary, as kids are heading back to school, kids are heading back to university, there is a post-secondary education housing crisis. Really? Now, why would that be? Would that be because hmm, we have no housing to start with, plus, plus more international students equals a shortage, Mr. Prime Minister? Who the hell is driving the school bus here? Like, honestly, talk about self-inflicted problems. But no, it's all about, you know, um, uh, people living in tents. Nobody realizes this affects every single corner of our population. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what class you're in. doesn't matter how old you are. A housing shortage is a housing shortage. And obviously, it's going to affect the most needy uh, in the greatest ways. So, you know, again, how do you get here? You've got a government who their their vision, their their uh, route to economic prosperity is to increase the size of the civil service and to bring in more immigration who will, I guess, vote for them. Nothing about building the houses to home them, house them, any of that. It's insane. And it's socialism. And here we have a prime minister who has taken the once great liberal party that was always left of center and he's drove it to the left. Everybody's talking about how extreme Pierre Polyevre is. Well, have you noticed that the center left party has joined the NDP years ago? So you're getting a good dose of left socialism right now. Do you like it? Do you like how this feels, just handing out money after a crisis, trying to hope the Band-Aids stop the bleeding, as opposed to actually doing something? And on that note, listen to this clip of the Prime Minister finally coming to the table. Hey, let me... Are you guys aware out there there's a housing shortage? Our Prime Minister just found out. But we see densification... We see uh, proper partnerships with municipalities across provinces 
as being essential to do that. And we don't think that the only solution is uh, to build on protected lands. No, but it gets the most headlines for a failing government, doesn't it? Look over here, something shiny. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's nice of this guy to finally show up uh, as things become crisis level to hand out our money to try to fix it. Uh, I don't get it. And he's talking about densification. Densification, my goodness, we were. this was an issue that came up 10 years ago, which is one of the reasons we weren't building. Don't build out, build into the city. And then, of course, NIMBYism becomes a part of it because these neighborhoods weren't designed for that. So there is some infill to be done, but that is nowhere near a solution, as every expert who's been on this show has said over the last decade. So welcome to the conversation, Mr. Trudeau. But densification is one spoke in a very big wheel, a wheel that you've just realized is spinning. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the conversation, Mr. Prime Minister. My goodness. <laughs> All right, I'll stop tap dancing. I get it. I get it. Uh, what else you got? Oh, another interesting point. Uh, Major Tom's on it, man. He's just like, I got a giant hook there. All right, get him off. Let's start again. All right, so uh, the government is going to ban, the Ontario government's going to ban celebrity from ads. Remember when they opened it up and said, okay, we can have gambling, online gambling, going to really open it up. And then Gretzky and all uh, all these people go on and they start, you know, uh, start selling gambling sites. And I, like, does anybody think that was right? No. And apparently, uh, clearer heads have prevailed and that stuff's going to stop in February. Just some of the stuff we're going to be talking about over the course of the show today. All right. Get ready for an incredible story. This is a feel good story. Uh, when Jen Sharinga starts pedaling her, inc- her recumbent bike in Spain, northern Spain this September, Her route will become part of a 10-year journey of perseverance since suffering a traumatic brain injury in 2013 when her car lost control and hit a tree head-on. West Park Healthcare Center's neurological rehabilitation program played a significant part in getting Jen ready for this accomplishment. Post-accident, she also spent three months in Hamilton's Health Sciences as part of her recovery. To talk more about all of this and this incredible journey, which started with a traumatic tragedy into now this. Let's bring in Harold and Jeanette Sharinga, Jen's father and mother, and with us now. Uh, Harold and Jeanette, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for the chance to speak. So uh, I'm just thinking of an outsider looking in and, and, and trying to digest this story and just thinking, holy smokes, this is an incredible feat. What's it been like for you as parents and my goodness, I can't even imagine what you all went through, uh, you know, for, in 2013 and now to this point. What's that journey been like for you? Hmm. Want to start? Um, uh, yeah, the, the first um, three years were really difficult. Um, it was, you know, hard to see progress and uh, we were discouraged and Jen was discouraged. Uh, it wasn't until we brought her home and um, she, she became more comfortable and we could sort of bring therapy into our house sort of on a daily basis that she started to um, get better um, mentally, spiritually, physically. And um, wow, we just took off from there. It's, it's just been an exciting journey just following Jen because she's the one that's really motivated and uh, determined and just doesn't want to stop. So yeah, tell us about Jen. Sorry. sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead, Harold. Go ahead. 
Yeah, you mentioned Hamilton Health Sciences. You know, that was that happened at about the three-year point that we had a chance to go there. And we got introduced to the value of a community of, you know, caregivers, but also fellow uh, brain injury sufferers, and just the value of rehab. So when we took Jen home right after that, I mean, you, you know, West Park was key to community service, but we turned the corner and started to just embrace uh, living and embrace, um, you know, working hard at rehab, even if the progress was slow. So uh, you, you certainly did understand that there was there were results to be had and that this was a turning point. Exactly. Yeah. Tell us about Jen and 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 this journey and 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 how she has got to where she has. Right. So um, I think at that I think at that three year turning point we we were aware that three key things contributed to her you know wellness just desire to live and she's very motivated about this trip but just about any chance to do rehab but the three things were um you know we had a strong faith and and supported by faith community and that that helped us to keep the faith and then hamilton and west park and others caregivers at home all formed a community and just remaining in community rather than doing this alone was key to um to persevering and then we just really became convinced that constant exercise constant rehab even if it's passive like she would be on a bike pedaling but the bike was doing doing it by a, an automatic machine even right. that got the whole core and the whole body working and so rehab just uh, was kind of magic in that it it opened up chance to recover uh obviously rehab is one thing but the spirit is tremendously strong and obviously she tapped into that yeah now jen is very motivated extremely hardworking, and um she was always ex- extremely outgoing, had, you know, a large community of um, friends and just wanted to draw people together. So that's she's still doing that kind of thing now. She's um, but, you know, really the same person. She's not able to speak and move her, her body the way she likes. But uh, she's yeah, really the same great uh, motivational person, motivated and motivating. And, you know, this trip, we got initially inspired by uh, a movie called I'll Push You. Those were the pioneers. Mm-hmm. A guy, mm-hmm. Justin, in a wheelchair and his, his good friend pushed him on the whole Camino in a wheelchair. Uh, that inspired us. But, you know, that helped us set um, just a, a dream and a big goal. And, and that also motivates both us and Jen. So talk about the journey that's coming up. Right. Uh, we're going to take a team of 15 all in, eight at any one time. It'll be a 30-day trip from September 15th or 16th, rather, to October 15th. And uh, we'll do about 300 kilometers of the total 800-kilometer journey. Uh, We want to experience each section. Like there's a part up front that's physically demanding, and then there's a part that's kind of mentally challenging because it's long days and long mileage. And then there's a final conclusion, which is most people say very spiritual experience. So we're going to do a piece of each of those. And so because it offers a a rehab chance, like Jen will be on this recumbent bike, because it's known for building community uh, and it is a faith kind of walk, it kind of checked all the boxes for a a great dream. 
and a chance, you know, for Jen to get out of her room after being in at home for eight years. She'll now get to travel abroad. It just uh, can abroad. you see? Can you see uh, a change, a difference in her now that she is about to embark on this? Yeah, well, strangely, uh, we're we're just on the cusp of it now, so a little bit of jitters about how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And honestly, mm-hmm. we've been preparing logistics and other things for a year, so it's all we've talked about. So um, she was stoked the whole time, still is. But now that we're getting right down to it, we're uh, we're just asking ourselves, have we taken care of everything and can we do it? So a little bit of that. Wow, this is amazing. So how can we follow you? How can we uh, follow the progress? Okay, well, we have a website. Uh, it's jensharinga.com, J-E-N-S-C-H-U-R-I-N-G-A.com. And um, yeah, there's just some information about the kinds of things that um, that we've been that we've experienced through this 10 year journey. And um, we'll be posting updates. And uh, if people want to contribute, they can do that as well. And then it links to Instagram. So there's a mm-hmm. few outlets. Right. JenSharinga.com, yeah. JenSharinga.com to find out more with us, Harold and Janet Sharinga, uh, daughter Jen, about to embark on a journey through Spain after uh, 10 years of perseverance and rehabilitation and a tragic car accident. Uh, An incredible story of the human spirit. Uh, Harold and Jeanette, congratulations and good luck with this journey. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. I'm not a gambler because I'm too cheap, uh, but I do fantasize what it would be like to win, but you know, I I never play. But you know, I have got no problem with it. I got nothing, uh, no problems with it all. You know, you do what you want uh, and do so responsibly like uh, everything pretty much we have. So, uh, but when when Ontario legalized uh, uh, whatever they legalized last uh, year, uh, it it just went from nothing to pigs at the trough. I mean, and really when you think about it, they've just got themselves to blame for these regulations that are coming in because it was just so in your face. Uh, not only was it athletes uh, endorsing gambling sites, it was part now of the program and there was odds as part of the analysis. Like what the heck is going on? Well, now athletes and some celebrities and I guess social influencers, whatever that is, no longer allowed to appear in commercials promoting online gambling in Ontario. Uh, the new rules from the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario go into effect February of next year. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR pop culture expert. Alyssa PR, she is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me on, Scott. We had, we, I think, I'm sure you and I have talked about this before, way back when. It just, it just went from nothing to everything. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is way over the top. What are your thoughts? Are you surprised here? No, in fact, I have been kind of distressed about the whole thing, even though I have a daughter, she's in her 20s. But yeah, I'll be watching a sports event or I'll be watching a, an event that would, you know, probably have the demographic of, uh, you know, people who gamble or people who like sports or people who like, you know, competitions. And I would think, you know what, this is, there's something really, really wrong about this. I mean, you know, like when you take your kids to a Dave and Buster's and, you know, they're trying to win games and they're trying to get tickets and they're trying to turn it in for not money, but for, you know, for a prize. I used to call that baby gambling. And, Mm. you know, I think that that was sort of, you know, you had to go there in order to experience it. But, you know, when you have ads to this nature with the reach that they're trying to get with these ads, they're spending a ton of money doing these ads in prime time when all the whole demographic between, you know, from 18 to 65 can watch. I was really disturbed about the normalization of gambling. 
It's like, hey, kids, I'm a basketball star. And if you want to really participate in this sport, well, go to, you know, this site and, you know, you can do online betting. And it just seemed, I just thought we're raising it a whole generation that thinks that gambling is just a part of life and it's just a very integral part of sports, which it is not. Uh, it's interesting uh, how, and I guess these new rules, many may debate whether they go far enough, but the rules say that celebrities, uh, influencers, uh, athletes uh, have to get out of this. Uh, I think what I really noticed about it was, again, you want to buy a 30-second commercial and sell pizza or beer, whatever you want to do, knock your socks off. But it's now interwoven into the actual sportscast or game or whatever, as if, you know, and then they bring out a a, a analyst and you know some gambling expert comes in and say okay what do you think the chances are of this that and the other like that's a whole different like why do they not just bring out pizza and beer and start having chugging contests at the desk because that's the line that this has crossed well it certainly has and i think that you know when you look at um there was one stat given during the 2023 playoff series game um when the leafs were playing the panthers there yeah. was eight and a half minutes of advertisement so you yeah. think eight and a half minutes well that's not very much well yes it is if it's in 15 and 30 second blocks secondly what you mention about when you have a panel so often what happens now is that these companies are sponsoring a section yeah. So if you watch Formula One racing, they have the DHL athlete of their driver of the day. Yeah. And DHL, you know, they deliver things. They do it. They're supposed to do it quickly. Hasn't been my experience, but whatever. They're supposed to do it quickly. So it makes sense that they sponsor this part of the race. But here you have when gambling, when a gambling entity is sponsoring that part of the segment. So what do we see on screen? We see a commentator. We see the logos. We see the chat about, um, you know, what, what do you think the odds are? And, and let's be clear that none of that is organic, Scott. Obviously, the logo placement is not organic, but the chat is not either. And that's yeah. what we call advertorial. So advertorial often happens, you know, when you buy a segment and you create sort of editorial around it. It used to be relegated to newspapers and it used to have a column that would say sponsored by. So, right. yes, you can see that perhaps subliminally that the segment is sponsored, but the chit chat is such and it's interwoven with the rest of the analyses that it sounds like it's just it's just part of the game. It sounds like it's just really just part of the segment. So it's become so insidious that you honestly can't even see that there's a blurred line anymore. And that is really what is the most dangerous. Uh, again, exactly as you said. I mean, this is beyond a banner ad. Like, let's just put a bucket of chicken at the desk and like, they can all eat it and tell us their thoughts about how each uh, piece tastes, because that's exactly what this is. Um, has this gone far enough? Um, what they've done is they've banned celebrities. This comes into effect in uh, next February uh, and athletes and such. So uh, the guy from Breaking Bad is gone. Gretzky's gone. But does it go far enough to actually take those segments out of the show? Again, you want to buy an ad for something, knock your socks off, but don't bring it in as part of the game. You know, whenever we see some sort of new policy or legislation legislation come down, Scott, do we ever see it go to the nth degree? No, it's yeah. always done in baby steps. So, I, you know, they have, uh, you know, there's stakeholders and there's lobbyists. There's all sorts of people involved whenever something like this comes down the pike. So what they do is they kind of tier it. So in this case, they've said, OK, no more athletes can espouse the uh, benefits of gambling at any time in any ad whatsoever. So does it go far enough? No. 
It doesn't, but it's a first step. So this is intended to mollify those groups that have been uh, very active in advocating against gambling ads featuring celebrities. Um, they will also say that it hasn't gone enough. They will say that it's a good first step. So the government will try and say, well, you know what we've done, what we can do. I think we've made a dent, so let's just move on. So unless the pressure is kept up by advocacy groups, unless the pressure is kept up by the average citizen that they don't like it, then the government will be, well, you'll have to force its hand in order to create even more stringent legislation. And we know that governments listen to voters because look what happened to the green belt. Uh, so is this pigs at the trough or not enough initial regulations? I think it's, it's yeah, that's quite a that, that's quite a decision you've given me there. Scott. Um, <laughs> I guess know, it's a bit of, I guess it's a bit of both or not I enough guess... regulation. I, I'm still back at the bucket of chicken, but I think <laughs> I think that it's regulation light. That's what I'll say. I'll say that it's regulation, yeah. right? The government is trying to show through optics that they do care about Ontarians and they do care about Ontarians' children. And this is why we've come out with this legislation. And until they see otherwise to go any further, I don't think it's going to happen so quickly. All right. Athletes and celebrities no longer appear in promoting online gambling in Ontario. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. All right. In a statement today, Premier Ford said he recently learned the two sites in Ajax uh, selected as part of the Greenbelt land swap agreement with the province had been put up for sale. He said at no point was the intention to sell disclose uh, to sell disclose to the government facilitator during uh, the discussions. In other words, it's not to flip. It's to build homes on. Where is this going? Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief and here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So, Colin, where is the story now? Um, uh, what's the update? Well, um, I can tell you a lot of the reporters at Queen's Park's heads have been spinning all day trying to figure out exactly what's been going on here. Um, in order to kind of tell you where we're at now, I want to take you back to 2018. So in 2018, the premier had said, look, you know, he he heard people loud and clear that he is not going to touch the green belt. And the premier gets elected in June of 2018. And just 11 days later, a foreign owned company, a numbered company, we don't have their names, decided to purchase this piece of property in Ajax for $15 million, $15.8 million to be exact. And at that time, they couldn't do anything with it. It was historically agricultural land. Uh, there's some properties on this land that uh, the town of Ajax wanted to turn into heritage properties. But beyond that, they couldn't do anything with it because it was squarely within the Greenbelt. Now in 2022, all of a sudden, this land is removed from the Greenbelt with the expectation that it's going to be used to build housing. Well, the owners of that land through a representative told Global News, they're not developers. They don't know how to develop housing. So they started to try to you know, connect with developers or their representatives to try to figure out how do we fulfill this goal that's been given to us by the Ontario government to build housing on this land. So as part of this process, their real estate agents say, they're trying to figure out how much the land is actually worth. Clearly, it's going to be worth more than $15 million because now you can build um, on it. If you you know build 15 mm -hmm. homes, that in and of itself could be worth more than $15 million, right? So they're now trying to figure out how much this land is worth. And so they decide 
they're going to put the land up for sale. They've taken drone videos of this thing. They've done some environmental assessments. They're they're doing all of these steps to put the land up for sale. But their real estate agents say their goal is not necessarily to sell the land. It's just to figure out what the value of the land is so they know wh what their invest investment has risen to so that when the development actually goes in, they know what their stake of the equity is. If you're if you're just as confused as I am, yeah, I can I I I I get it because this this is you know quite a convoluted situation. But at the heart of it, the premier says if they sell this land, they're gonna put this land back into the green belt. And if the premier opens that door of reverting lands back into the green belt, you can very quickly see where this is gonna go because those calls to reverse those decisions will only continue to grow. If 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 we're to believe the person who owns or the development or the number of company that owns this land that they're just doing this to find uh, what the value of of the land is worth and that they don't build homes, why would they have purchased the land in the first place? Because well, obviously, with a greenbelt designation, its value is limited. Well, that is a central question, right? I mean, you could you could simply ask, why does anybody do anything? But in this case, right, like, why would you purchase land for fifteen million dollars? This is no small sum of money, and it and, and it is a you know prime real estate, right? It is yeah. um, kind of nestled right by the four hundred one and by uh, Kingston Road, according to some of the descriptions on the on the real estate listing itself. You know, they talk about all of the amenities that are very close by, things like uh, golf courses or other big townhouse developments. Um, you know, it talks about how there's nearby uh, a couple of land, car dealerships, a Walmart, a Home Depot, uh, Costco, LCBO, Starbucks. So uh, clearly in this listing, they're trying to sell somebody on the fact that this is a very prized piece of land that you can now build on. But you know, the, the government is saying, if you choose to sell this land, because this yeah. is not about flipping land, it's about, mm -hmm. you know, building on the land, they're going to put this back into the green belt. I, we have to see, I guess, what will happen in the days uh, to come, but they were set to take bids on this land on September 15th or September, September 14th. So they're expecting submissions uh, for people who are interested in this land by September 14th. So we'll see what happens after then if they choose to sell it or if they choose to keep it. If they choose to sell it, I guess we know what that outcome is going to be. It's going to be back into the green belt, according to the premier. So um, the current owner is not interested in building homes at all on this or even contracting well, no, it's not that they're not others. interested in building homes. Is that they're not a developer. I mean, right. look, you know, if you owned a big piece of land and you're not a developer, I'm not a developer, yeah. right? I wouldn't know how to do it. And so what they're saying is they're trying to enlist the help of developers, but they need to know what the land is valued at in order to right. enter into any kind of joint venture with the developer, right? I, I guess what they're what they're trying to figure out is what Colin, is their... that Colin, that sounds harmless. So who do you believe here? Because I don't know about that. But it also goes to kind of show you just how shadowy this entire process has been, right? I mean, the government says they took out these lands to build 50,000 homes. So one would have thought that the government would have entered into some kind of agreement with the people who own these lands. Now to find out that these landowners aren't even developers, that they don't even know how to develop land, and they're seemingly kind of feeling around in the dark to try to figure out how to get to this destination, it it, it really uh, leads you to believe that this process was hurried, as was outlined in the Auditor General's report, and that maybe the government doesn't quite have an idea of who owns all of these lands. And and, you know, whether or not they're actually going to be able to do what the government wants them to do.
What about, yeah, I was just my next question, Colin. What about legalities here? I mean, I guess they can redesignate something that they've designated just the opposite uh, a short while ago, but is there any legal footing here? Well, you know, the province would find itself then in an interesting position, right? I mean, if now all of a sudden this land is valued at X and now it's valued at Y, you know, if they revert it back to the green belt, do they have a lawsuit in their hands from somebody who thinks that they got a lot of money? But, you know, because did the government enter into contracts with these individuals to say you have to use this for X purpose for building housing? If they didn't enter into those contracts, if these were just agreements, if these were just, you know, a handshake, well, I mean, could these companies not go back and say, you now owe us a lot of money for this land? Um, you know, and and let alone the fact that the, the province will find itself in a lot of political hot water if they start going back on these Greenbelt deals, as the mm. NDP has been asking them. It seems like this is opening the door to more scandal on top of scandal. And, and we'll see where this all goes. Either way, it doesn't seem like it's very good for the government, because here we are more than two weeks after the Auditor General's report, and this is still one of the you know top trending topics across the province. Housing is going to be an issue for the next 10 years uh, anyway. Colin DeMello with his uh, Global News Queens Park Bureau Chief uh, giving us the latest. Colin, as always, thanks so much for My the pleasure. time. Be well. My pleasure, and thank you for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know that the Prime Minister captured a lot of the young vote, younger vote, youth vote, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the last uh, couple of elections and gave him his uh, majority way back when. Uh, But however, has been dropping in pretty much every single demographic across every region and in some is behind the NDP in third place. So uh, the Prime Minister is meeting with his Youth Advisory Committee, which was just set up in February, in order to get hip to what the kids are concerned about and the plan, the policies accordingly. Let's bring in Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is here now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. Peter, thanks uh, for taking the time. We always appreciate your time with us. What is the Youth Advisory Committee? We understand this is relatively new. Well, it's new in that every year a new one is uh, appointed. But uh, since, I think, 2016, uh, there's been a new one every year. And so it takes uh, young people can apply uh, between, I think, the ages of 16 and 24 to sit on this council. Uh, I think the first time out, you know, back uh, when Trudeau was maybe more popular with young people, they had something like 10,000 applications for, uh, you know, 15 or 16 spots on the committee. Uh, And so this council meets. Often uh, in Ottawa, uh, you know, it's a bunch of very uh, accomplished young people uh, who then, you know, talk about issues and uh, ultimately uh, s- send a bunch of recommendations uh, to the federal government. Uh, the federal cabinet also asks for their opinion on a certain number of issues. So uh, it's a bit of a, uh, I think, mostly symbolic uh, group that tries to, uh, you know, bring a bit of dialogue between, you know, what some youth might think and what the government is doing. Uh, does uh, Obviously, he's trying to refocus on this group that brought him a lot of success in the past. Can you win that back? Can you turn this around? Uh, I mean, I think it's a bit difficult in that Trudeau uh, got elected with a real kind of sense of promise of change. 
And when you've been in place for eight years, it's kind of clear what the extent of that change is going to be. So for people who are looking for something a bit more substantial, chances are they'll be moving on to, to other options. You know, also at the time, he was presenting himself as someone who was going to bring a sort of fresh energy to Ottawa, wouldn't necessarily be getting into the constant fights that uh, Stephen Harper seemed to be getting into, uh, you know, on issues like, you know, should we have a census or not? Um, you know, but again, after eight years, uh, there's a tarnish on any politician. And certainly, I don't think Trudeau has that sense uh, of bringing fresh energy to the job. So I think it'll be difficult for him to to regain the support of young people and, and millennials going into the next election, you know, kind of naturally. And, you know, obviously, there is an attempt, though, to try and turn the tide a bit by showing him, you know, listening to young people, I guess, or engaging with this youth council. So, you, you know, your view that this was a new thing, which would have also been my view, not following it closely, hmm. uh, you know, but in fact, this has been around. But what's maybe changing now is the emphasis of the government trying to put this on full display uh, because they think there's maybe some political hay that can be made out of it in terms of having some nice visuals of Trudeau uh, listening to young people and their concerns. On the flip side, the fact that you have to ask, which many would say is pretty obvious what the problems are and, and why youth are, are disenfranchised, does that prove that perhaps you're out of touch? Yeah, I guess you could you could look at it that way. Uh, you know, I think, you know, these kinds of uh, mechanisms are, you know, set up because, you know, they've got hundreds of businesses each day lobbying the government, uh, you know, other groups like youth, it's a bit harder to get their voices in. But yeah, I mean, in a situation like this, it would seem like the answers are a bit obvious. Um, you know, and there's also the question of which youth is he listening to in this kind of context? I mean, these are very impressive young people. And I think it's, you know, great that they have an opportunity uh, to get together and come up with these suggestions. But you know, the the votes that uh, Trudeau is losing is probably not the votes of, of those kinds of people. I mean, they look really like liberal voters, you know, in, in large numbers. I mean, there's I'm sure some of them vote conservative or NDP, but, uh, you know, there's a really kind of strong liberal sense to them. The votes he's losing among young people, I suspect, are much more, you know, people who are working at Dunder Mifflin-like jobs in places like Mississauga and Brampton. And uh, I'm not sure listening to this youth council is really uh, allowing him to understand the struggles of people living particularly in the GTA as, as young people uh, and to, to respond to them. I mean, maybe he does understand them, but uh, certainly, you know, listening to some really bright young people talk about world issues is probably not really uh, the message that he needs to win back the votes that he seems to be losing in the GTA. Uh, we've heard the, the phrases of late, uh, fails to read the room, late to the discussion, band-aid solutions, what have you. Uh, an example, I'm watching a news conference today, and uh, the, the, uh, the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev, was asked about uh, Justin Trudeau talking about a new prime minister's residence, which, you know, we certainly all know that that is needed and the history and the story behind that. And, and if you decide to do it now, it'll be a couple of prime ministers from now before it is even occupied and such. But again, something that probably would have been a good suggestion at the beginning of his term, not now when people are having a hard time affording their own homes. And then, of course, the leader of the opposition jumped on that. It's, you just think, my goodness, can you not read the room here? Um, he fail, he fails to do that. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Trudeau from the beginning uh, was someone who elicited pretty uh, strong reactions. <laughs> and I think you know, what's probably changed is that people who uh, were quite favorable to him at the beginning, 
you know, now are beginning to have more of the negative reaction. Uh, they invested, you know, a lot in in his, his positive personality. And, you know, when when, mm-hmm. when it does become a bit tone deaf, uh, then I think those people can turn quite quickly on them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of that is is having been around too long, uh, not really yeah. having one's sort of finger on the pulse. But I think also uh, when people have been around a while, uh, you know, as, as citizens and uh, or even as people who like consume pop culture, we want something new. And so we get irritated by things that have been around too long. I mean, maybe Justin Trudeau is still kind of hair metal uh, while the world has moved on to grunge and uh, things that, you know, seemed really good <laughs> four years ago aren't, aren't so much anymore. I mean, these the things have their time. And, uh, you know, whether that's fair or not to politicians, I think, you know, it was the same for Stephen Harper before Trudeau. Uh, at a certain point, people get tired of, of the persons who there who's there. And even if they're doing really the same thing they were doing six years ago, now it's annoying. Whereas, you know, in the past, maybe it was something you didn't really notice. Hey, it works for hair bands. It works for politicians. Peter Grafe with us, professor of political science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We've been talking a lot about uh, interference from other countries, whether it's uh, Chinese Communist Party interference in our elections and process uh, or, or such, or whether it's Russian intelligence services uh, and police helping cyber criminals operate with near immunity, impunity rather, against their targets, including Canadians. Uh, do we have a handle on this sort of thing? It just seems to be getting worse. Let's bring in David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Oseron Security. And here now, David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. So, uh, David, is the government doing enough here? I mean, you know, uh, a while ago, the the big topic was uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, election interference in the last two elections, public inquiries, David Johnston, and now that's all kind of gone away for a bit until we figure out what's going on with the public inquiry. Is the government just as uninterested in Russian uh, cyber attacks uh, against us as it is something like this? It seems like we're kind of dropping the ball here. Well, yeah, I, I would say this. There's a difference between the 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 government in terms of the federal government and the uh, and the folks working day to day trying to uh, protect uh, Canadian interests um, and the political class and the you know the folks who are are the day to day public servants are raising the the red flag. They're blowing the, the trumpet. They're singling the alarm that things are going to get worse. And um, I don't think the political class in this country cares. I don't think they care about national security writ large. See foreign interference as, as just one example, the languishing of the Canadian forces as another. Uh, but on cyber, you know, what constitutes an urgent priority in Ottawa is maybe we get a law that's been overdue for 10 years passed by the end of this year, and maybe it comes into a force in some time in the next two to three years. Meanwhile, we're engaged in actively, publicly, and vocally supporting Ukraine, which from my perspective is the right thing to do. But we're picking the fight with the Russians who have no uh, compunction about punching us back and and we've been sticking our jaw out there and we've got a glass jaw and it's going to hurt when that punch lands uh why why are we turning a blind eye to this i mean because sooner or later it does come back to bite you is it just convenience well what is it well i i, I would say that 
you know, for this particular government, holding their attention on any given issue is extraordinarily difficult. Um, I, I think it's it's incumbent that Canadians in particular are talking about this as important to them as the pocketbook issues like inflation, mm. the, the housing crisis and other things, because they're not governments pay attention to what voters care about. And voters, I think, for too long have ins- have assumed that government has its house in order on national security and the house is on fire. Hmm. Uh, Russia, biggest culprit here or just one of many? Well, Russia is the single largest culprit. We also have Iran coming up quickly uh, and North Korea to sort of round out the axis of nerd evil. And, you know, in this case, the uh, the Russians have a, a cash crunch. Obviously, their economy is taking a pounding from sanctions. So criminal gangs are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars a month in much needed ill-gotten uh, currency from these ransomware attacks. So that's a win to the Russian state. Not only that, but it causes untold havoc to Canadian interests. The the ongoing cleanup at Suncor on top of the crippling of chapters, which cost tens of millions, and the absolute chaos at Sobeys, which has cost north of 50 million, these are direct costs that that aren't absorbed by the shareholders of these companies. These costs eventually get passed down to Canadians and are part of the inflation crisis that we're dealing with. Uh, nerd evil. Wow, that's a great term. Uh, and the governments, they're a part of this. So in other words, they're getting a kickback from it. It's not like they're doing anything to stop this and, if anything, encourage it. Absolutely. In fact, we have leaks from some of the gangs like Conti, which clearly showed that there are times where the government in Russia, for plausible deniability purposes, will actively engage these third-party criminal gangs to carry out its foreign policy aims, whether it's uh, – you know, finding out information about uh, activists or others, or disrupting industries that are critical to its opponents. Uh, in the case of U.S. intelligence that was leaked earlier this year, we know that a Russian D-team criminal group of hackers, not even the A-team, the D-team, managed to get into a Canadian pipeline that was improperly exposed to the internet, uh, could have caused a physical uh, incident with that, and reported back to an FSB handler um, who initially said, go make it go boom, before uh, the census came mm. back and said, you know, don't do anything for now. Wow. Um, Ken, it seems that the government takes the position, hey, this is going on everywhere. It happens everywhere. It's been happening for years. It happens like it's nothing new here. So therefore, nothing needs to be done. What can they do, the government, in order to actually have an impact on this? Well, actually, they, they've got broad support from critical infrastructure providers in industry and others to get these critical infrastructure laws passed so that we all can work better together, that there are clear incentives to shareholders and boards and company executives that the need to invest in security uh, with some tweaks to things like you know some of their overreach on the secrecy side or overly uh, burdensome penalties that um, need some some due diligence defenses. So, so they've got buy-in to get it done. What we need to do is actually see the political process in Ottawa, I don't know, go back to work. I don't care if you're working remotely mm. or if you're showing up in parliament, but pass some laws, man, and, and get moving on this because we're in the middle of the second Cold War. We're going to get slapped around pretty hard, and it's not going to be the politicians in Ottawa that suffer. It's going to be everyday Canadians through higher prices or, God forbid, disruptions of critical infrastructure in the middle of winter. 
Is this all about generating revenue for Russia? Oh, it's about generating revenue. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Putin loves to see when when his opponents are suffering economically. Yeah. So, you know, when Canada's largest oil and gas company, Suncor, is going to have a very bad uh, quarter and, and losses to it, that's to Russia's gain. And, and that hurts the Canadian economy. Putin can't launch missiles at us because, you know, that kicks off World War III. So he punches us where, where he can. He embarrasses politicians. They use disinformation to uh, to crank up Freedom Convoy 3 or Freedom Convoy 4. And then they uh, hit us economically, um, which is, you know, below the belt line where people don't see, but we all feel it. Do we do this in other countries? Do we do it back? Or is it not about doing it back? He's just putting up a defense so it doesn't happen to us. Well, I mean, the, the the communication security establishment did get the mandate to hack back, and they they have been working with allies to actively do um, operations to ruin infrastructure. In fact, today, the United States just pulled off the single largest counterattack against criminal infrastructure, a, a piece of malware called QuackBot, which has been used in various incarnations for the better part of a decade had infected 700,000 computers around the world and was used to send things out like phishing emails. The FBI got judicial permission uh, and used it for the largest operation of its kind and uh, removed the malware from 700,000 computers that people didn't even know was there and significantly raised the cost to Russian cyber criminal gangs. That's a huge win. And, and we are helping with that, but we need to do more of it. David Shipley with a win, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boseron Security, uh, Russian intelligence services and their police helping cyber criminals operate here in Canada and other countries. And um, we just seem to watch it happen. David, as always, thanks for the time. Interesting discussion. Be well. You too. Take care and stay safe. This is kind of bizarre considering where Canada is right now and housing crisis and affordability crisis and what have you, that uh, our environment minister is in China. Uh, and the headline says, Beijing propaganda arm warns Gibo against condescending to China in climate meetings. Even before the meetings start, they're giving us our marching orders. So says the National Post. I'm going to read you a bit. As the Canadian Environment Minister visits China for a climate change conference, Chinese propaganda outlets are heralding the significance of the trip while warning Gibo is not to take, quote, a condescending tone with his Chinese counterparts. You mean like they do with Canadians? Uh, the arrival in Beijing on Saturday marked the third First visit to China by a Canadian minister in four years. It's funny that the environment is the portfolio they decide to send a minister from. On Sunday, the Global Times, published by the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee, heralded the visit as an opportunity to, quote, ease the strained China-Canada relations. However, it quoted a source warning that if Kibo, quote, demands that China become more aggressive on carbon emissions in a condescending tone, the result could be counterproductive. Uh, it sounds like there's some strings to the puppetry. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and uh, thanks for having me. So considering our relations with China of late, are you uh, surprised it's the uh, environment, environment minister that's going over to teach them about climate change, considering their record on coal? I, I'm really surprised he's going here to begin with. Uh, we know that he's member of a... A uh, rather dubious organization, which he has not disclosed, um, considering this is a country uh, for which most Canadians uh, and Parliament has deemed 
uh, interfering with our electoral uh, system, our institutions, one uh, would have uh, one would have expected that the last thing you'd want is a cabinet minister flying over there almost by stealth and uh, uh, going there for various and sundry reasons. Uh, China will say that about you know about anyone. Uh, don't interfere with us. Don't uh, talk uh, negatively. Don't try to uh, uh, you know to reproach us. The fact is, Mr. Guibault, noted for really wrecking things in Canada, a person that's given to prevarication on a number of files, uh, willing to uh, you know to apply his uh, his past, which is you know very strongly Marxist socialist, uh, an avowed separatist. There's a whole litany of stories about this guy beyond just dangling from buildings uh, that hmm. I think should create alarm among Canadians. The fact is, he's a minister in a government that uh, didn't disclose his relationship with a nebulous or rather interesting organization. And uh, to me, uh, his presence there uh, should have been a foregone conclusion. He should not have been there to begin with. Um, how is China viewing this? Why are they having him there? Are they sitting down for a lesson on climate change? <laughs> I'm sure they're going to listen to Mr. Gibo. No, he's too busy trying to tell a clean country like Canada what to do. Uh, but of course, a country that nevertheless is selling a lot of coal uh, to uh, to that part of the world, uh, China and India, uh, but uh, refuses because apparently there's no business case for natural gas and LNG. Of course, the uh, United States knows that's not the case, just signed a $150 billion deal with Germany. That'll be the same deal that Germany wanted Canada to at least consider, given it had that 1.1718 projects uh, in, the, uh, in the hopper. But I digress. Uh, opportunities have been lost. And I, I just want to make it really clear to people that when you lose that kind of potential economic investment because you're too woke, because you think Canada is the bad uh, actor here when other countries really don't give a darn, it means thousands of people will not get uh, the social programs they need, the pensions that they need, the hospitals paid for that they need. $150 billion bucks in economic activity every year would certainly boost the Canadian economy by about 8%. And uh, that's an opportunity lost. Of course, the Prime Minister said there's no business case and we have his, uh, uh, you know, uh, we have his environment minister who's too busy trying to tick off provinces and tell them what they ought to be doing as far as getting rid of natural gas. By the way, Alberta had a, a very interesting level three alert last night. It means their wind power failed. There was no wind. Uh, temperatures went up. And had it not been for natural gas, the thing that Stefan Guibault wants to get rid of, Alberta would have been left uh, pretty much in the dark for a good part of uh, this morning. Uh, we certainly know, uh, if you know anything about climate change in China, they are the biggest, if not one of the biggest villains in this discussion for their use of coal, as you said. Um, do you think that the, the, that the environment minister is going to try to build a strong case for Canadian liquid natural gas to China? I mean, what does the prime minister hope to accomplish by this other than smoke and mirrors? <laughs> well, kind of hard to say you're going to do anything when you've already said no. Uh, you're not going to build it and it takes a long time for it to get there. We have one project, but of course, militants have made darn sure that it, uh, at every uh, at every stage, the coastal gas link uh, doesn't get through. These are the same fanatics and activists uh, that uh, Mr. Guibault and company uh, herald from. Uh, you know, Equiter, uh, Greenpeace, uh, take your pick. It's a garden variety of folks that basically have been very successful at hog tying Canadian energy. So I think it'd be a bit of a joke to go to and, and you'd be. <laughs> pretending to uh, the Chinese government that you have any interest in getting Canadian energy to them. Uh, 
uh, other than coal, because of course you've pretty much scuppered any opportunity for us to get that, those much needed products out there. We're not talking about a country that doesn't have it. Canada is the third largest provable reserves of oil in the world, the sixth largest natural gas. That trumps us well over uh, places like Russia, Oman, Qatar. Do we yes, do we send do we send China coal, Dan? Yes, we do. Tons. We have one of the largest. We have the largest yeah. coal export uh, out of uh, Vancouver, the port of Vancouver. Uh, How bizarre have, is that? How hypocritical is that, it is, Dan? It is. We in have the biggest coal port in North America, and no one knows it. Yep. No, Canadians don't know it because that's not taught to them in, in the school of wokeism. Uh, we're told that uh, Canada is a bad country, uh, that natural gas is not good, that we do bad things for the environment, and we don't bother telling them that we have a coal uh, pit. Uh, rather so we have a, we have a coal deal with China, but we don't have a natural gas deal with Europe. No. Where does that stand? Nor with China. It's just bizarre. It's bizarre. It's a lost opportunity for Canadians, and it makes sure that there are emissions. Uh, whatever they should call them, because we're only dealing with CO2. We don't care about the other so-called. Uh, the other things are pollutants. They're, they're actual molecules. Uh, CO2 is uh, is a gas. <laughs> it's part of the part of the reason we exist as, uh, as human beings. But that aside, we have great opportunity, and we have a prime minister who made it very clear to Japan and to Germany, our G7 allies. No, no business case. You ain't getting any. Oh, by the way, we'll give you some hydrogen down the road. I don't know what point our listeners here will begin to understand that the disconnect of this government now manifests itself in terms of the higher cost of living. Our Canadian dollar isn't strong because we're not exporting anything the world wants. And as a result, you and I are paying, uh, what, an extra 28 cents mm. for a liter of gasoline? Now multiply that over every commodity that's priced in U.S. terms. It means that we are losing our ability to make ends meet and affordability is going out the window because we think nothing of our ability to get energy to the rest of the world, energy that the rest of the world is coming to our, our door begging for. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, our Environmental Minister, is in China right now showing them a thing or two about climate change. Dan, thanks for the time. Be well. Always good. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's talk about green uh, green belt and the housing crisis. Uh, the idea of the green belt comes from the United Kingdom and I guess has to be continually managed. And if we do not need to beat uh, to build on the green belt, we've had many experts saying we got uh, 20 to 40 years of housing between the green belt, the white belts and in urban boundaries, then why are those areas, those alternative lands other than the green belt, why have they not been developed? Could it be that the same people that are stopping expansion in the green belt or looking for a, a, a debate there are the same ones that don't want you building anywhere unless it's a high rise in an infield development? What are the options out there? And should we not be combining all of them to tackle the growing crisis, whether it's housing Healthcare, the environment, what have you? Let's bring in Murtaza Hader, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, and I hope you're doing well, too. So far, so good. So how do we manage uh, the green belt moving? Like, forget about even the debates that are happening today. How do we manage this moving forward with this ongoing crisis? Because... This housing crisis, it's taken many, many years to create and will take many years to solve. How do we balance this moving forward? 
It's a big challenge. I mean, um, we we are in a state of impossible urbanism. Um, we cannot build um, where land is already developed, sort of, you know, the so-called brownfield development or infield development. Um, and then all the greenfield and the green belt is off limits. So people are not letting you build in, the, in their backyards. Environmentalists are not building, letting us build in the green belt and the population of Canada just increased by a million plus in last year. Um, so it, it is an impossible gridlock that we are forcing ourselves into. I think this is deliberate self-harm um, because the population is increasing and the housing stock is not increasing at the same pace. And despite the commitments and realizations by the three tiers of government, especially the province and the feds, that we need millions more homes. CMHC estimates 3.5 million homes in addition to business as usual in the next eight to 10 years. And Ontario is planning to build 1.5 million. But there's, we are not even, the needle is not moving at all because uh, you can build. So the question is what to do. I think what has happened recently is that this, this Green Belt and the, and the Minister of Housing uh, staff or Chief of Staff issue has complicated the matters further. Yeah. And the reason I say this is because now people think that, the, well, Green Belt is definitely, we can't touch and look at what was going on and there's so much hanky-panky. Um, so let's try to build elsewhere. Because you know what people say, there's enough, enough land available to be built, we don't have to touch the Green Belt. And I ask them, if that's the case, if there's been enough land available, then why we have not built enough housing? Yes. If there's been enough, I mean, it's a simple thing to ask. If, yep. know, if there's enough land, we have zoned it for development and it's available. And then, so the question is, what is stopping it? Because the prices are rising, housing prices. So if I'm a builder and I see if I'm holding on land and I see the prices of housing rising, it is in my interest to build because the, mm -hmm. the, the product that I'm creating would be more profitable. So there's something fundamentally missing in it. I think the builders don't know what the planners think and the planners don't know what the builders face. And we have to do something about it. Uh, so what is the answer here? Because, again, uh, the big question is, and, and to me, the whole Greenbelt discussion has brought this to the forefront. And it seems yeah. to me the same people who don't want building uh, on the Greenbelt or, or because of an, an urban sprawl, are, are, are they don't want to build anywhere. So yeah, it, we've got these alternative lands, but nobody's built on them either, and nobody is explaining why other than to blame developers, which I find uh, incredibly hilarious because at the end of the day, it's governments that make the rules and regulations for them to follow. So why have we not built on that alternative land? Yes. So I, I make two points here. One is that we are at the mercy of bananas. You know, to build absolutely nothing, anywhere near anything, you know, B-A-N-A-N-E-S, bananas, well, absolutely nothing. So that's where we are. But the, but the bottom line is, look at the, the concept of green belt. And I say this, that it originated in, the, in, 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 in England because they have been putting these green belts um, much long before we did. And guess what? In the August 17th issue of The Economist magazine, uh, they have finally said that the green belts are choking the economy. They are not letting the uh, housing to grow. And if you don't have housing, you won't have new workers. You won't have new workers. Your economy won't grow. So there you have it. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, sort of blasphemous to even suggest that, but I hope that people will pick up the economist issue on August 17th and read 
the arguments they are making about the green belts near and around Oxford and London and other cities. The second point I would like to make is that building housing and especially affordable housing would be a tremendous challenge, a big challenge in places like Toronto where land values are so high. And I think what we need to do is leapfrog uh, beyond the green belt and look at cities where land values are cheaper and will be cheaper to construct. And these are places like Stratford, Ontario, or Kingston, Ontario, um, or Guelph, Ontario. I think it's time to now think of these towns to grow. And why, why can't we think of Stratford being a town of a half a million or, uh, in, in the next 10 or 15 years? And the biggest reason for this would be that land values are much cheaper there relative to uh, the land values in uh, central Toronto or downtown Toronto. And that's the only way forward because land is one of the most expensive components of building. And you, if you continue to try building housing in the most expensive, on the most expensive land parcels, the end product wouldn't be affordable. And to think, Murtaza, for you saying or uh, offering your opinion and saying that some may think of it as blasphemous, that just shows you where and how this discussion has gone to the extremes. And it's great to hear you uh, shining a little common sense on it. Uh, Murtaza Hader, Professor, Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. We'll chat again. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. A recent poll commissioned by the Association for Canadian Studies found that half of Canadians felt that they were more successful than their parents, but roughly almost the same amount, just under 50%, also believed that upcoming generations would obtain or attain lower levels of economic success. The millennials do not feel that they're going to do as well as the baby boomers, and the baby boomers seem to think so, says the president and CEO of the Association for Canadian Studies. Is this doomerism or reality? Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and here now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Hope you are, too. So far, so good. Thanks, Michael. Is it is it just a given that this generation will have less economic success than their parents? No, I. if I were guessing, and of course, this is just a very, very much a guess on an age-old question, I would guess that they would continue to be better off. I mean, for one thing, we've had a long-term trend uh, towards longer life expectancy and longer working life expectancy and longer healthy life expectancy. And there's no reason to suspect that won't continue. Um, there's all these developments in technology that this generation will benefit from. So I don't, I don't think so. But on the other hand, I think what the answer reflects is to some extent uh, a feeling of pessimism uh, that has probably been worsened by two major recent events, and that's first the pandemic. And there's going to be a sense in which we're going to be paying off that for some time. Um, and also the Russian invasion, because that also changed a kind of a long-term trend towards uh, towards peace, towards having to spend less money on military. Uh, now those things are, are going the wrong direction for us. Uh, so the world uh, continues and does advance despite the economics. Sure. And I, I think that uh, obviously there's concerns. There have always been concerns and people yeah. worrying about environmental things. Uh, perhaps our society is becoming more polarized, even as in some sense it becomes more inclusive. Uh, but I think also this poll probably reflects other shorter term concerns, for example, problems with housing. Is it unreasonable to think that each generation should progress beyond the one before it? Um, I think that it's something that is probably a shared ethic, uh, but and I think it's achievable. Uh, but of course, we are talking about 
a relatively narrow window and we're talking about Canada, which is a prosperous country. It's it's certainly not been true across the world. Uh, so it's it's a challenge for us, but I, I do believe that most people think that that's, that's one of the things that our society should be striving for. You bring up an interesting point. I remember having this discussion with my late mother who lived through the Second World War and being a young person and saying, you know, we are so much more lucky than you. We didn't have to go through for uh, this. And then, of course, here I am, a middle-aged and older guy and, and now you know, gone through a pandemic and what we're going through now. It's like each generation has its thing, no matter – and you really can't compare one to the other, can you? I don't think so. Uh, but I, I think in terms of this – somewhat shift towards pessimism that this poll, among others, has identified. I, I do think it probably has to do with some fairly serious short-term problems that you know we are not addressing well as a society. And, and one of them is housing. Uh, one of them is government debt. Uh, one of them is inflation. You talked about housing, and uh, it seemed that this has come out of nowhere, although we have been talking about this for 5, 10, 15 years prior to the pandemic. Obviously, if you don't build, there's going to be a shortage. Uh, I heard a poly- uh, I heard a pundit say this is going to be, or this is the hot-button issue of the day. Will this not continue to be a hot-button issue just simply because it took years to create? It's going to take years to get out of this. We're going to have this problem for a while, are we not? I, I think so. I, I think we've we've really put ourselves in a bad situation. Uh, one easy way to think about it is we're we have about the same number of housing starts that we had 30 years ago for a country that's yeah. almost twice as large. Uh, it's it's really unfortunate that we've got ourselves here. Uh, and then a couple of recent things have aggravated the problem, uh, but it's not going to have a quick solution. And I actually think this is what's going to turn out badly in the short term for us. That this is something that we're going to prove is going to prove to be very thorny. Uh, and this is the first, uh, this last provincial election, I remember saying it's the first in my time I've ever heard all four major political parties all say that they're going to build uh, a, a million plus homes. Are you surprised that this has come to a head the way it has? And all of a sudden, like literally uh, within months, this has become a major issue, although we have seen it brew, uh, been brewing for a while. Are you surprised that, that it's come to a head like this? Uh, I think it's about time. I, I guess at mm. least it's it's finally up to the top of the agenda. It's one of those cases where economists like market solutions, but a market solution will never be perfect for housing. Housing has to involve uh, many more social dimensions, including the political and the social uh, ones. And so uh, it's not something that we can just say, let the market solve it. But on the other hand, we can't prevent the market from doing its part in solving it. And I think that's that's a place where we are that's just really difficult for us to come to grips with. And I think that now you're hearing people talk about, oh, well, we kind of solved this problem in, after World War II with the great burst in housing then. Uh, but I think we have to see that now the problem is is actually more challenging, that we're not, we don't have the number of supports in place to be able to build that number of houses in that in that kind of time. Uh, it also seems that, especially with a Greenbelt debate, that you know, once something's set in stone, it stays there. But these things have to continually evolve. Uh, times change. We have to revamp master plans, do we not? Yeah, I don't know about the Greenbelt because you know maybe there are ways to to build more on existing land. What I still see so far is, well, it has now come to the top of the political agenda. Uh, we haven't seen a lot in terms of firm plans. And I think that even if one says, okay, the green belt is no longer inviolate, I think we should recognize that that could be at best a very small part of the total solution.
Good point. Will there be a generation here that can't afford a home? That's our fear, isn't it? And of course, it influences all sorts of other decisions that people make if if they are uh, don't have their own home. Uh, I think that there is going to be a time for the next, I don't know, I'm saying maybe 10 years in which we're going to have real problems uh, because that's that's the kind of time horizon we're looking at for a true solution here. And that still involves uh, political will. And we haven't demonstrated that in the past uh, on this file. It's interesting that um, you wonder if politicians realize this isn't like a six months, uh, six month thing, and then it's gone, and you're off to something else that's uh, that's nice and shiny. My next question is was going to be how long do you think it's going to take to correct? Obviously, this will be a crisis for years, but you think it'll be a decade before we get caught up? Well, if you just look at the numbers, and and if you say even if we doubled the number of houses that are being built or the number of homes that are being built uh, in Canada. Uh, 10 years actually doesn't quite do it. So it's a long-term problem. I do think that, of course, there's some immediate short-term things have to be done on shelters and so on. Yeah. Uh, but those are no more bad. All right. Uh, another fascinating discussion with Michael Veal, Professor of Economics at Master University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Center. A self-inflicted problem because of politicians who have spent the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years not doing anything. And we've had 20 years of a liberal government prior to the pandemic and then eight years during. And we are where we are. And you can point fingers and you can say whatever you want to say. But if you don't build... It will equal a shortage, and that's where we are. Get ready. Building will be the word for the next decade. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one via text. Joe says, I'm fed up with activists in the Canadian government costing Canadians. Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo is and always was an activist. An arrested one at that. He and Trudeau do not speak for the majority. Keep right except to pass. 